What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back. Really excited to dig into today's show. But before we go, I want to apologize because there was a glitch in the matrix and we did not have a show last Monday. Now, I feel like you all probably forgave me because we still had a Friday show, but I want to come out and say I apologize for that. But I'm really excited to air this episode because it's some really important things that you all need to be thinking about as we round out this crazy, slightly hellish year. We're going to be going over all the things that you need to be thinking about before the year ends as it relates to your taxes, as well as some financial planning tips and tricks that are more time sensitive. Now, we're going to talk about something for everyone. So those that are self-employed 1099 earners or K-1 earners, those that are W-2 and employed, and even finishing out actually with things, tax and financial planning, things that affect all of us. So I'm bringing on my partner, Casey Kress from Physician Wall Services, who's also co-founder at Physician Tax Advisors, as well as our other co-founder at Physician Tax Advisors, John McCarthy. And by the way, we've met a lot of you in our community that were interested in finding a CPA that actually understands physician finances. And honestly, I think we're can speak for all of us that we're very happy to be working with so many of you. But if we aren't working with you yet, and if you're interested in looking and having a better relationship with your CPA that actually does proactive tax planning, head over to physiciantaxadvisors.com. Before we jump in, I also want to mention that my friend Jimmy Turner, the physician philosopher, is hosting a killer webinar called Defeat Burnout Without Leaving Medicine. He's going to be diving into some free teaching on how to coach yourself to become a, the best partner, parent, and physician that you can be. Now, all of those are obviously extremely important. So visit financialresidency.com slash TPP webinar for more information on the webinar that he's giving. Now, let's jump right into the show with Casey and John. And by the way, this episode was done as a Facebook Live in our community. So you're going to hear me as we're going through this, read out some of the questions from our audience that was live and then us tackling them on the Facebook Live and now obviously on air. So be sure to join us next time in our community, which you can join at financialresidency.com slash community so we can answer your questions live too. All right, let's jump in. Enjoy. So for those of you that are catching the replay, likely pushing play right now, welcome to the replay. This is actually the live version. We're excited to bring on John McCarthy, who's the co-founder of Physician Tax Advisors along with myself and Casey Kress, who's also the co-founder of Physician Tax Advisors, but also Director of Financial Planning at Physician Wealth Services. And we're going to be talking about all the live, all the year-end tax planning and financial planning you know, must-dos that you should be looking for or potentially doing as it applies to you. And so the way we're going to break this out is we're going to talk about things that are applicable for those that are employees, that are W-2 employees. And then we are going to be talking about those that are self-employed and what they might need to be looking at and doing. And then we're going to talk about how things affect everyone and what everyone could be or should be doing. John, Casey, welcome. Excited to do this Facebook Live with you guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We're excited to talk tax today. I, As Casey puts it, isn't everyone excited to talk tax on a Friday afternoon? Yay. Very Super fun. All right, John, so start us off here, my friend. So for those that are employees, I should always do this, the disclaimer, right? 
This is not tax related advice or specific to you. It's not financial advice. This is general tips and hints and tricks, things that you should be looking at, but not please don't go take it, run to the bank and do this. Work with someone who knows your situation. So check out with your CPA, your financial planner, your attorney. Don't use this as like entertainment purposes only. All right. Now, John, you can take it away with those that are employees. What are some of the year-end tax tips that you can talk through? So we'll go over some general things today um, that apply to the vast majority of of employees. As Ryan mentioned, there certainly could be some specific uh, things that might apply to your situation, but we'll try to hit some general big things here today that'll work for everybody. So with employees, the first thing we look for as tax advisors is looking at employee benefit options. For W-2 employees and seeing what can we do there to help maximize the situation as, as best as possible. So one of the, the, the top ways that you can save some money on your taxes would be looking at maximizing 401k balances for the year. So if you haven't topped off your 401k, you know, this year the, the maximum is 19500 for employees. That's the first place to take a look at it. A lot of employers will allow you to contribute up to 100% of your net paycheck towards the end of the year. Not all of them do, so check with your HR department on that. But uh, you know, if you're able to do that and you haven't maximized your 401k, that, you know, that's one thing you might be able to do here before the year end. It could have you know a pretty nice impact on your year-end tax bill. Yeah, and just to make sure we're really crystal clear, when you say up to 100% of your paycheck, it does not mean that you can do that and go over the $19,500 limit. It just means that if you haven't been able to contribute for whatever reason throughout the year, thanks to probably COVID, that you need to get more money in, you can actually potentially do that if your plan allows that. So what is what are other things that employees or W-2 earners can do as we're rounding out the year? Yeah, another thing to consider along the same lines of retirement savings, depending on your income levels, and this is where the advice is, is general in nature here, look at the rules that, that apply to your specific situation, but you could potentially put some money away into either a deductible IRA, non-deductible IRA, potentially a Roth IRA. And once again, this all depends on your income situation, but that's another place to look for either some tax deductions that you might be able to get this year, or at least putting away some money for retirement that's tax deferred. So you're not paying taxes on a lot of grows. Yeah. So Casey, we, we chat, obviously we've got residents, we've got new attendings and established attendings in our community, maybe give them a little heads up on like when someone should look at the Roth versus the traditional and maybe even discuss a little on the backdoor Roth. Yeah. So we always like to check those adjusted gross income amounts and it really is most important, I would say in those transitional years. So it's generally really clear in training, unless maybe you have a higher income earning spouse. So again, general advice here. But generally speaking, if you're in training, you have low enough income bracket that you're going to be able to put money directly into those Roth accounts without any problems with going over those thresholds. If you are in a transition year, so you finish your training in the summer and you're starting your attending job, go ahead again and reference that adjusted gross income amount. You have all the way until April to fund those IRA accounts. So maybe hold off until you have all those numbers crunched, work with your CPA or accountant to look at what that adjusted gross income falls out to be to see whether or not you have to transition over to that backdoor Roth strategy. 
So I'm going to make sure we're not missing. If anyone has any comments as we're going through this, like feel free to to jump in. We do want to answer some of your questions. We might save it to the end as you're listening. Feel free to jump in and ask some questions. All right, John. So we got maximizing our 401ks or 403bs, maybe even 457s, depending on what you have going on at your employer plan. We've got traditional Roth. What else do we have that employees could be thinking of? We're getting ready to head into open enrollment season. So the next place I like to focus as a tax advisor is on other employee benefits that you might have available to in workplaces. So if you haven't already gotten the email from HR on open enrollment, you probably will see uh, you know, here's where we're looking at you know, flexible spending accounts, making sure we're choosing a, a good health plan, potentially choosing a high deductible health plan and funding an HSA in some cases, depending on your situation and what plan you have available to you. If you have medical expenses, you know, these are good ways to save and squeeze a little bit of tax efficiency out of your situation. Just keep in mind, there are some differences between flexible spending accounts and the HSAs and how they work. So make sure which one you're in. The flexible spending accounts are use it or lose it. So uh, you, you want to make sure not to put too much in that you're uh, you know, not comfortable that you'll be able to spend in the next year. HSAs are different in that you can carry those balances over from year to year. HSAs are a lot more flexible in that regard. Um, so if you're comfortable with a high deductible health plan, sometimes the HSA are a good way to save some extra money. And we talked about the, you know, HSAs and how it's triple taxed advantaged and all that good stuff. Maybe Casey, why don't you give just a real quick 30 second overview so people know how actually powerful that account really is. Yeah. Again, I think healthcare needs come first. So depending on your healthcare needs, the HSA account might not trump those other expenses, but if you are generally healthy and overall, you're going to end up being able to probably lower your premium inside of a high deductible healthcare plan. So your overall monthly costs will be less. And then you also have that added tax benefit of being able to put money into the health savings account. So when people are able to do that and cash flow those other medical expenses, the health savings account becomes a stealth IRA on top of it. We like people to think about not using that money. It seems counterintuitive that you put money in for medical expenses. And if you have a medical expense, generally you think you should take the money out and use it for that, which if you need to and you can't afford to you know, do this strategy, then again, not necessarily for you, but if you can afford it and invest, that money is going to grow tax deferred and still come out tax free if used on medical expenses at any point. That's a little financial planning strategy that we like to use. And it's not necessarily the right strategy for everybody, but a good way to take advantage of both the tax advantage plus some long-term savings and investment growth. Casey's trying everything she can to make this fun. She's Calling it a like, stealth IRA. Like, I love to make it. it sound super cool. <laughs> this is so fun on a Friday afternoon. Come on, people. We love this. And it's like only us three nerds. They're like, yay. <laughs> All right, John, what else do we have? Is there anything else that employees can be doing you know, to, to help on the, at the year end here? Yeah. So, along those same lines, before we leave the employee benefit uh, discussion here, I mentioned the FSAs are use or lose it. On the flexible spending accounts, both the medical ones and the daycare ones. If you've got funds in there, we want to do our best to use those funds before the end of the year if we can. Make sure you know what your balance is there. And this is a good time to start coming through those medical expenses. And and, in some cases, some over-the-counter type of expenses for medical would qualify for that. So if you can rifle through your receipts and just make sure we're getting all that money out of there before the end of the year. So it's a good idea to do it now here before the rush. 
Yeah. So one one person watching with us live here had the question of what is the difference between a Roth 401k and I'm assuming a normal 401k? How does that affect our taxable income? Uh, company husband's company has this. Not sure what to do with it. So John, why don't you talk from the tax effect of traditional 401k versus Roth? Yep. Yeah. So the traditional 401ks allow you to deduct in the current year from your taxable income. When you get your W-2 at the end of the year, we're looking at box one, and that's what goes on your tax return. And that traditional 401k reduces box one and then reduces your taxable income on your return. Basically, traditional 401k is going to reduce your tax income right here. Both of the accounts allow you to grow that money tax-free over time. In that sense, they're the same. But the Roth 401k does not reduce your income. But when that money comes out in retirement, that's it. That, you know, at that point, you don't have to pick it up as income. So you're essentially, you're going to get a, a reduction in taxable income with both accounts. It's just, just you know, when that is going to happen for you in the year that you contribute or in the year that you take the money out. Uh, now, the next question probably is, okay, which one makes sense for me? This is where it probably helps to talk to your tax advisor, you know, because this is going to be an individualized answer. But in general, you're going to look at and, and try to decide what's my tax rate look like this year versus what is it going to look like in retirement? And obviously, that's a bit of a loaded question, right? We're in election year. We, we don't know what taxes are going to look like even next year, much less in retirement. This is where it, it's, it's important to you know, either work with a financial advisor or a tax advisor probably and model out some things and, and really think through which one makes the most sense. Yeah, we had another question. Does going for PSLF affect the way you think about these year-end strategies? So I think definitely even just tying into the last question, depending on you're in an income-driven repayment option or you're trying to lower the payment as much as possible to, which sounds counterintuitive, have that basically your balance continue to grow. And then ultimately at the end of the 120 payments, uh, which don't have to be consecutive, but they do have to be 120 payments to have that all forgiven. If that's the case, then maybe the traditional is the best sense for you to put money away versus a Roth, even though that might be counterintuitive that you're under the threshold, maybe Roth is the best answer uh, for you. So it's, it's really going to be specific to your situation, but it, PSLF does affect certain pieces of this. And I think definitely the investment side is one of those. So John, now that we've gone through some of the ones that are affecting employees, what about for those of us that are self-employed? What are some of the things that we need to look out for? So once again, we'll return to the retirement theme because this is really a you know, way that we can supercharge some tax savings. But we've got some different vehicles available to people that are self-employed in order to, to save on taxes. So the, the two most common retirement accounts that self-employed taxpayers will use would be the SEP IRA and solo 401k. And which one you choose it depends on the level of retirement savings that you're able to achieve for the year and how much cash you're able to put away. And it's a you know, function of how much you're earning as a self-employed taxpayer as well. So there's no necessarily uh, you know, 100% right answer as to which account is, is the best for you. It really going to depend on your situation. So the SEP IRA, it's going to allow you to, in most cases, save less than the solo 401k, but the SEP IRA is traditionally a little bit um, cheaper to maintain that plan. So that's how we look at it from a macro perspective. But once again, that, that's where it helps to do a little bit of research there before you open up one of those uh, and make sure which one makes the most sense for you. Yeah. And Casey, maybe just a real high level on 
what is a solo 401k, how that maybe differs from a normal 401k that they're probably thinking in terms of that. And then maybe just a little bit about what a SEP is. And I think that'll help round out the thought process there. Yeah, I think the solo 401k allows, as John was mentioning, more flexibility in the long run, although can be more complex to maintain in the long run. So thinking about pros and cons. But the cool thing about the solo 401k is just if you were part of a retirement plan as an employee, it's a similar plan in allowing you to contribute that same 19500 for 2020 into the plan as an employee. Then you get to take that hat off, put the other hat on as the employer, and there's an even higher maximum contribution that allows you to go all the way up to $56,000. Whether or not you have the income to get up to that level is dependent on that self-employment earnings. So you'll be able to work with your accountant to make that calculation to see what that profit-sharing component or extra savings that you're going to be able to put into that solo 401k as the employer of your own self-employment business. The SEP IRA, I always look at it as a good one to, if you forgot or missed the opportunity of the solo 401k, you only have until the end of the tax year. So December 31st, that solo 401k account needs to be set up, generally speaking, especially to do that employee contribution. The SEP IRA will give you more flexibility. You can open that after into the new year. You actually even have all the way until the tax extension deadline to fund that. So I think that's where that SEP IRA has come into play from a financial planning. If we've missed the deadline on some of the other stuff, uh, it can be a good spot to get started. Yeah, definitely a little more flexibility in terms of those that might procrastinate, but not always the best option. Sorry to interrupt, but if you have employees, just be thinking about how these types of plans might affect your staff in the future because there's certain IRS eligibility requirements. And that's something that I think some practice owners, when they get these plans started and they're the only contributor, then it all of a sudden takes a turn for maybe something they didn't necessarily expect on cost. And overall, I think it's a great benefit to continue to provide, but just thinking about how that affects overall compensation for your staff is a good point to look at. Yeah. Happy you interrupted. That was a really good point to add. So John, we've had conversations around this, so I'm going to toss this back to you here. Someone had asked in our community, what do you think of using QRP in retirement accounts for real estate syndication investing? Would you use Roth or regular 401k? They referenced Tom Wheelwright says to not use retirement accounts for real estate investing since you lose the passive tax deductions. Yeah, there are certain retirement vehicles that will allow for syndications or some different classes of assets to be included in them. What we find is that you know the management fees to allow for those types of investments can eat away at your overall return. So as a CPA, I don't necessarily advocate for the, the comp- more complex investments to, to sit within a retirement vehicle. I like those things to be separate uh, for that reason, uh, just to keep costs down a little bit because it is eating away at your, your tax deferred growth um, that way. That, that's my general rule. Yeah. And Casey and I as financial planners, even though I invest in real estate and real estate syndications, I look at this as this is the one step closer to uh, being way too heavily invested in real estate. If you're starting to not invest in stocks or bonds and you're leaning way more into the real estate 
a section, you're going to end up being over allocated there, potentially taking too much risk when maybe your need or ability to take risk isn't there. And I just, I firmly believe in diversification. So I think everyone should own a little bit of everything. Not everyone is meant to be a landlord in real estate, but like you mentioned, syndications are a way that people could invest without having a wheel to hammer around. But I wouldn't be very inclined and I wouldn't be excited. And I personally would not invest in real estate into pulling out money in my, my 401k to do that. So John, we talked a little bit about SEP and solos for self-employed. What are some of the other things that us crazy self-employed folks can look forward to at the as we round out the end of the year here? Yeah, so a couple of areas to, to think about too before the year end. Uh, this is a good time to start sorting through expenses and making sure we're doing a good accounting of everything that we might be able to deduct against the self-employment income. Um, a lot of times what we'll find is tax accountants will be talking to clients and they're going to rush and, and trying to come up with a whole year's worth of receipts uh, all at once when they see their tax bill. And you know, obviously working through that when you've got a couple of months until the end of the year, you're going to be a little less stressed. You're hopefully going to find a few more deductions if you take your time and go through things. Be looking for that stuff and be thinking about it before the end of the year. And if you have some big expenses that are coming up for the business, um, if there's any training that you have the choice of doing maybe between December or January, fitting that in right before the end of the year does speed up the tax deduction. It doesn't save you a huge amount of money by pushing it into next year necessarily, but you are getting benefit of that deduction one year sooner than you might otherwise. So there's a little bit of value to doing that as well. I think every little bit helps, but at the same time, I feel like while I'm talking to you, I feel like you're looking right at me when we're talking about organizing receipts, because that is not my strong suit, even though I do love numbers. I don't love paper and numbers together uh-huh. that make up the receipts. And John, I mean, of course, has been doing all of our business, our personal stuff for five years now. So he's well versed in how bad I am with keeping receipts. But I feel like he was talking a little out as Casey on this one. Take personnel. That's a good advice for everyone. So, <laughs> yeah, that's how I'm going to think of it. But I'm thinking that was a personal jab, but it's okay. We, we get you organized. We get you there. It's okay. You're, you're getting me there. That's true. All right. And so, what I know we've got a big one here, and I know you probably say this one for last, but what are we looking at for the last little bit here for self employed? The big thing we see a lot of self employed taxpayers do is they've got a, maybe a a little bit of a head in the sand in terms of what tax liability might look like at the end of the year. And not everybody is as good as paying estimated taxes, perhaps, as they should. So I would encourage anyone that's self-employed to do at least kind of a back-of-the-envelope calculation to see what your tax liability might be shaping up to be at this point in the year. And if you haven't made any estimated payments, at least be starting to think about reserving some of that cash and setting it aside for April, even if you're not making a payment quite yet. Just be aware, expect that money to come in on a level basis throughout the year. So um, they are expecting quarterly payments in a lot of cases. Um, Now, there are some rules, there are some safe harbors. We won't talk about that yet today. But uh, in general, there's the quarterly requirements to make those estimated payments. So if you have the cash on hand and you know they have some liability, you you may want to go ahead and get some of those payments in, even if they're a little bit late for the year. Thank you for sparing us the nerdiness of digging one or two levels deeper because Casey put it, it is Friday afternoon, John. They don't like us that much to get that nerdy. All right. So now everyone, whether you're W2, you're self-employed, hopefully just employed, but everyone, what can 
everyone be looking at? What are some of the benefits or things that they could be doing right now for the next two months to round out the tax year? Yeah, so depending on how many deductions you have and what your income is, one of the things to start taking a look at is whether the standard deduction or itemized deductions might benefit you for the upcoming year. So, you know, first take a look at your prior year return and see what you did. That'll be a good guide as to which one applies to you. But if you're able to itemize, then looking at the buckets of itemized deductions, making sure you're keeping receipts for everything will be helpful. You'll thank yourself when you get to uh, your, your tax return filing. I feel like he's doing it again, Casey. <laughs> Just one more time. <laughs> so, you know, one of the big ones here that's easy to misplace are, are the charitable contribution donation receipts. So start pulling those things together now if you haven't already and you're able to itemize because that'll be helpful for you at your end. The IRS does require receipts for that stuff. So if they ever do come and take a look at your records, they are going to want to see those receipts. So make sure you're saving those goodwill receipts or getting the uh, statement from your church at the end of the year, wherever you're donating from. Put that away in your files uh, for your end. So I know that something changed here with COVID. We've mentioned on the show before, but because of COVID, you don't necessarily have to itemize completely. And I think that would be helpful because I think there's a lot of people in need right now. And most of the people listening to this are in a position that they may be able to help. So there is a tax perk for those that want to give to charity at the end of the year here that maybe don't itemize. So why don't you go a little bit into that? So there was a new CARES Act provision. Uh, they actually changed a few things here in the charitable contribution area, but we'll hit on the one that, that will impact most people. Um, if you are not able to itemize deductions, new benefit this year is that you'll be able to deduct up to $300 of contributions, regardless of whether you itemize. So not a huge benefit at the end of the day, but depending on your tax bracket, it could save you $100 or so on your taxes. So yeah, nothing to sneeze at. You know, so make sure you keep those receipts at least up to the $300 even if you can't itemize. Well, in, in an individual level, yeah, that's not that maybe enticing if that was you're only inclined from a tax standpoint. But I think as a nation, if those that are able to help or we're basically giving $300 away and we get a hundred of it back in tax savings. So really you're giving 200, but $300 spread across potentially millions of people could help a lot of people. So I wanted to make sure we highlighted that one here just because as we're at the end of the year and COVID has affected so many people. I think we could do a lot of good in that sense. What else do we have, John? I know you've got a, a list here of a few more things that everyone could potentially benefit from in the last couple months. So if you receive the stimulus payments earlier this year, keep track of that paperwork because if you're working with a, a CPA, they're going to ask you about that. That's going to be one of the questions that you get this year. And the reason for that is that stimulus payment was actually an advance on an, what is going to turn into a tax credit on your 2020 return. What that means for everybody is that if there's a situation where you didn't receive the full advance payment in the spring when those were sent out, there's a chance that you could still get credit for the full amount, but we have to compute it on the tax return and see what your income level was for this year. So the good news is you won't have to pay any of it back, even if your income went up. Uh, but you could get a, some additional benefit depending on your income level for this year. And I want to come back to that around not just stimulus, but also PPP before we finish this out. But we had a question that came in. Any value in alternating the standard deduction versus itemized deductions if you plan on giving large charitable contributions? 
That is an excellent question. Are you sure that wasn't planted by somebody in the audience? That, 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 that I, I didn't plan. Although I, I know this individual, he's very smart, and you might think I planted, but I did not plant this question. That's an awesome question. It, it's an area we like to plan with. It's especially great for clients that are right at that level where they're hovering around the standard deduction. And when we've got charity like that, we can push people above the standard deduction. They can itemize one year. And then you can drop down to the standard deduction in, in year two. So what you could do as we're coming up to the end of the year is potentially double up on your charitable contributions and take them all in December, do two years worth in December and get a benefit for all those itemized deductions and then fall back down to the standard deduction in year two. So yeah, that is a very good strategy depending on what, what your income and deductions look like. Yeah, for those that are more charitable inclined, there is some planning involved if you do plan to give out a, a decent amount of cash or stock. And there's donor advice. So there are all sorts of other ways you can do this, but um, I think that's a, a good overview or, or at least a start to thinking a bit differently about charitable contributions. What else do we have here? We've gone through stimulus and itemized and standard and some charitable stuff. What else do we have? This is more of a cautionary tale than uh, necessarily a tax savings one, but Anyone that's been dabbling in cryptocurrency lately, if you've bought a couple Bitcoins somewhere here or there, just be aware the IRS now has that information in a lot of cases. So what we thought might be you know, a secret type of currency, well, the IRS, there's nothing secret from the IRS. They're going to find out. So <laughs> cryptocurrency, when you sell it, is a taxable transaction. So you're not going to get a tax form for it. Um, you're going to have to go digging for that information, but it is reportable on the return. And there are some questions on there that will ask whether you have that. So just keep that in mind as you're getting ready to fill out your taxes. By dabble, he means gamble on Bitcoin, <laughs> how that works. So that's really interesting. I think that's important because crypto, maybe not necessarily this year as much than prior years, but it has been very popular, kind of the rage of the new quote unquote investing, even though we know it is not investing. But that's really, I think, important info from a tax perspective that you do need to track your cost basis and you do need to report it. So one thing I know that you're probably going to bring up, but I'll maybe Casey stab on this one and correct me if I'm wrong, but is Talking about some tax loss harvesting, because I know Casey's been hard at work for all of our clients doing that, especially well in March, we were definitely hard at work at that. But there might be some tax loss harvesting uh, going on. So Casey, maybe why don't you talk a little bit on tax loss harvesting? I think great segue as you're looking at your investments overall, as John mentioned, the Bitcoin investment and then just looking at your non-retirement. So if you do have an after-tax or taxable account that you've set up at E-Trade or Vanguard that you are putting money into on a monthly basis, and again, maybe back in March, if you didn't sell anything, there's still maybe some losses hanging out in that account that you want to be able to sell and actually harvest those losses, that's going to help you offset some of your income up to $3,000. The other cool thing is that if you have even more losses than that, they carry forward, you can use them to offset other gains in the future. So using make lemonade out of lemons, I guess we don't like to lose money in our investments, but there can be some tax savings opportunities. So if you don't have any 
and you've done well in the market, maybe you invested in April and you've just done great in some Tesla and Amazon and Facebook, then you aren't going to want to sell those because you're going to pay some tax or maybe you want to diversify. So always good time of year to just look at your investments overall, see how that might affect your taxes, look at those statements overall, and then you'll be able to have a good strategy in place for going forward. For those that don't know Casey that well, that was a little jab at those that all of a sudden became market timers and stock pickers. Uh, Obviously, those (laughs) have done really, really well and so much uh, so that it's actually shifting the way some of these indexes are are looking and performing, which is a little worrisome. But at the same time, we're we're not actively trying to pick stocks. uh, But somehow everyone became stock pickers in April and March of this year. There's another way that uh, we can learn it saving at the end of the year here, John, and what's the last way that we have identified? Uh, So one final thing to take a look at is uh, potential five to nine education plan contributions. These work best, of course, in states that allow a state deduction for this amount. And of course, you know, Ryan loves California so much, but of course, California is not one of those states. Oh man, he's cracking jokes now too. You, you love the California tax structure. I love the sunshine and the weather. Got to pay the traffic, for it somehow. Yeah. But there's pieces of California that I love. And you just mentioned one that I don't love. <laughs> so, yeah, unfortunately, California does not allow a state deduction. Uh, states like New York, though, do. And there's plenty of other states. Uh, Connecticut does. There you go. <laughs> Casey's like, don't forget about me. That's it. So yeah, we pay a lot of tax, so that's a good one. But I think also just an important note, one thing that came up with a client today is some of the more advanced people in our community who are also being careful about investment fees inside of their 529 accounts that also have a state tax deduction that try to get creative. And I love it because I always like to make sure people aren't paying more in investment fees than they need to. But want to talk a little bit about some of the state's recapture in terms of what that 529 deduction might look like if they don't leave the money where they need to. Yeah, some states have gotten wise to that to that potential workaround where you can contribute to the state's 529 plan and then immediately roll it out into maybe a more efficient plan. And a lot of them have come back with basically a carve-out that uh, requires you to then recapture that state tax benefit that you might have received if the money isn't held in the account for a certain amount of time. So you do have to watch that. It's a good point, Casey. They want their fees. I think an unintended consequence sometimes when people move and they're, you know, you know, just thinking they're consolidating it to their new state and don't realize that they might actually have to give back some of the t- other state tax deduction that they would have otherwise gotten. So just something to be on the lookout for. We had a couple other questions that came in. So One is looking at working from home and costs of potential deductions for those of us that were forced into it this year. I wouldn't say necessarily forced because we do this voluntarily because we love what we do. But for those maybe that say we're forced into it, maybe John, talk a little bit about the work from home issues and potential strategies. And I know we had a whole show that we talked about when you have income in potentially multiple states or digital remote work, but maybe give a quick recap. Yeah, a lot of people impacted, obviously, from work from home uh, issues for this year. If you are a W-2 employee, the news is not so good uh, in this area, unfortunately. So the 2018 tax law changes took away what we would call miscellaneous itemized deductions, which working from home and home offices were a piece of that was taken away as deduction options. So 
from a federal perspective, W-2 employees work from home, don't have a lot of good answers there for you. There's not much we can do. Now, the key point to keep in mind here is that some states decoupled from that change. So there are states that will allow work from home deduction. So don't let that dissuade you from putting that information in your tax software or giving it to your tax accountant at the end of the year, because depending on what state you're in, you might still get a little benefit there. So is California, one of them, California does decouple from that. So there is a potential. There's some limitations. Trying on to it. redeem themselves. Yeah. They it's hard to get to there, go. but yeah, yeah, you can potentially get there. They got a long way to go to redeem themselves though. Not going to lie. <laughs> Uh, another question that we had around tax loss harvesting, is there a waiting period before buying the securities again? Casey, I think this is one that you can take on. Yeah, and a really, really important question because you don't want to lose that loss that you harvested by the wash sale rule. So there is a 30-day waiting period. You don't want to buy back that exact same investment that you had. Uh, I think the good news with the investment universe, as broad as it is today, there's so many different like investments that you'd be able to easily move over into something else. So you're not sitting in cash like I think people used to do more often. So you'll be able to easily reinvest that. Just don't pick the exact same mutual fund proxy for the ETF that you were in. Be careful about just, again, choosing something in a different uh, type of category, but a similar benchmark and you'll be good to go. So wait that 30-day period at least if there's no reason to necessarily get back and forth into different investments. If the new one is a similar, again, benchmark, then you can just stay in that new one. And if there's a tax loss harvest to take from that, then you can go back into the other and just maybe choose two that you go between every 30 days if there's even enough to do that often, which I wouldn't suggest churning your investment account. Gentle balance between tax loss harvesting and placing unnecessary trades. Or just throw it all on Tesla, right, Casey? <laughs> yeah. To the please moon. don't do that. That is yeah. a joke. Please, right. please, please. Big, don't big, do that. Big, this is big, not investment Yeah, big asterisk. Not investment <laughs> advice. Do not do that. Well, and one of the things to highlight just to make sure it's like, you know, plain English here is that if you are, let's say, again, not investment advice, but if you were in the Vanguard total stock market to go buy iShares total stock market, those are not different enough. Those are too similar. But if you were to go Vanguard's total stock market to maybe the S&P 500, that's different enough. Different makeup, different index that's tracking, blah, blah, blah. So just wanted to give a point of reference yeah. to that piece. John, is there anything that you think we're maybe missing or uh, any other parting thoughts? I do want to touch on PPP really quick before we go, but make sure that we've identified maybe anything else that could happen between now and the end of the year that people can be on the lookout for. I will say the tax world is ever-changing. And of course, we are in an election year where we're about to uh, have some political changes. The Congress has gotten very good at making last-minute tax changes for the year in December or even after the end of the year in January, February, even though this is a relatively slow period of time normally for tax policy, the last couple of years have not been. So keep your eye on that. There could be potential tax moves to make before the end of the year, depending on if we get any additional legislation. We still got a stimulus bill that's floating around in Congress, or at least at the date we're recording this. Just pay attention and keep track of any developments in that area. So the last thing I want to kind of part with here, John, is the PPP loans and the forgiveness and just all the things that are surrounding PPP. And so as we round this out near the end of October of 2020, when we're recording all of this, 
What's like the latest on the PPP and those that maybe took it out behalf of their practices, their businesses? Like, what are we dealing with and how is that going to really impact potentially our tax situation? Yeah, so we've got a couple issues that are still outstanding. Most recent development in the PPP loan areas, we do have a simplified application that was released by the SBA a couple of weeks ago. So loan balances, I believe less than $50,000 now can use the simplified application. So if you are eligible to use that application for forgiveness, I'd encourage you to do so because it is a much more simplified process to go through. We are still waiting to see if Congress will pass any additional legislation. There was talk of a blanket forgiveness that would be available for certain loan amounts. We still haven't seen action on that. So that's one of the items that could still squeak by here before the end of the year that would provide some relief for even filing some of those forgiveness applications. So and that loan amount was like 50000 correct? Or was it less or more? Yeah, I think there was proposals all the way up potentially to 125000 on the loan process. So we'll see. I mean, those numbers are obviously very fluid. So, and we may not even see any action on that um, before the end of the year, but uh, it it was out there at least in some earlier bills. Yeah. It makes complete sense. They funded in like a month what they would have done in 10 years in terms of total dollar amounts. So they're trying to figure stuff out and obviously they were impacted by COVID as well. So, well, thank you so much, John, for your time today and Casey as well. I I wrote Casey into lots of stuff. So that's how this works. Fun hanging out. I enjoyed our tax chat. Yeah. I'm happy that we were able to do it in a Facebook live setting. Thank you for those that attended and asked a great questions. And we, we appreciate all of you in our community. So thank you so much for, for being here. And if there's anything else that you guys have questions on, feel free to always call them in. Go to financialresidency.com slash question. And we'll make sure that we try to get it answered on air. All right, everyone, have a good weekend. Nice Friday, light tax talk on Friday afternoon. Thanks to John. But yeah, appreciate all of you. Take care. All right, everyone. Well, hopefully you learned a few things out of there. I know there's lots of time sensitive stuff coming up, whether it's on the financial planning or on the tax side. And I think all of you probably have a little bit of homework to do as we round out the year, but trust me, it'll be worth it if you're actually putting in the time and effort because it'll probably save you some in taxes and honestly, probably better your financial lives. So I'm happy that we were able to, to do this for you guys. If you would like to be in our live show, we would love to be answering those questions because we're going to start doing more Facebook lives with our community. Like I said, you can jump in, hang out with us at financialresidency.com slash community. Now, before we go, it is time for that really important disclaimer because I want you guys to be so adept with your finances that your friends don't even recognize you. But the only way to do that is by being smart with the information that you're learning from the show. Now, the podcast should be looked as an educational tool, and that is it. I only give advice to clients who I actually work with over at Physician Wall Services. And if you're not one of them, we would love to work with you. Come on over. Check us out at physicianwealthservices.com. We're fee-only financial planners, and we work with physicians all across the country. But honestly, I don't think you should take advice from anyone who doesn't know you. So again, if you're looking for advisor, come check us out at physicianwellservices.com. We can definitely talk. But until then, talk to your legal, your CPA, your financial advisor to get specific advice to you that you might need right now. All right, everyone. Well, have a great week. I will see you guys on Friday. Cheers. Cheers.